You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. The Constant is brought to you by Industrial Artifacts. Industrial Artifacts is home to more than 20,000 square feet of vintage lighting, seating, tables, advertising, and other found objects, each with a story to tell. For instance, perusing their wares just now, I discovered a strange three-dimensional sign for Norwich Union Fire Insurance Society, one of the oldest fire insurance companies founded in 1797. Up until 1929, signs like this one, called insurance marks, were put up to denote what buildings were insured by whom. Why? Because fire insurance companies had their own fire brigades. Rather than city fire departments, the insurance companies themselves were the way you got people to come quench the flames. But only if you had the insurance mark. If not, tough luck. That's just one of thousands of items available at Industrial Artifacts. They've got everything you need to outfit a new bar, office, or even your kitchen. And right now, Industrial Artifacts is offering constant listeners 15% off their entire first order, simply by entering coupon code THECONSTANT at checkout. So go to industrialartifacts.net today and remember to enter coupon code THECONSTANT at checkout to get 15% off your first order. Ah, 19th century insurance industry, the original protection racket. John Day of Suffolk, England, made wagons up until 1774, when, for reasons known only to himself, he decided to try something different. Submarines. Just by the sparse set of facts known about Day, it seemed unlikely he would succeed. He was illiterate, had received no education whatsoever, and, maybe most importantly, he was dirt poor. It was also said he was a huffy jerk, jealous of the success of those around him, and unwilling to compromise or rethink his opinions. Not a great combination of features for an 18th century submariner. And yet, John Day managed. His first vessel was an old fishing boat, into which he built a watertight compartment. He attached some stones to it, climbed inside, and descended 30 feet into a pond near Yarmouth. Day claimed he stayed under inside the fishing boat for 24 hours, which, yeah, no you didn't, John. But he did remain submerged for some considerable time before, satisfied by his experiment, he cut loose the stones and the boat floated back up. Day didn't see this as a curiosity or hobby. 
he saw it as a chance to achieve the riches and fame he deserved. He vowed to build a bigger submarine that would dive deeper and longer, and he vowed to shove it in the face of every last Englishman who ever doubted, overlooked, or ignored him. But first, he'd need some money. So he approached the only guy he knew who had some, Christopher Blake. Blake was an inveterate gambler, but a fairly successful one, and he was more than happy to advance Day 350 pounds. If John Day were a little more prudent, he might have asked Blake just what the advance was on, but he was just happy to have the money, which he used to purchase a 50-ton single-masted sloop named the Maria, which he then went about converting into a larger version of his first submarine. He built a watertight compartment into the midship and surrounded it with sealed hogshead barrels for extra buoyancy. Day's plan was to publicly descend in the Maria to a depth of 130 feet and to stay there for 12 hours. Blake's plan was to take bets on whether he could do it. On June 20th of 1774, a brass band played to the crowd at Plymouth Harbor as the Maria was towed out to open water followed by a flotilla of small boats and ships packed with people hoping to see one of the world's first submarines and maybe make a quick buck while they were at it. John Day entered his compartment of the Maria with a bottle of water, a candle, and a box of biscuits. His assistants attached the stone ballast, and Maria sank beneath the waves, while Christopher Blake took last-minute wagers. The other part of the plan was that Day would periodically release colored floats to indicate his condition. But no floats ever surfaced. And neither did the Maria, and neither did John Day. Attempts were made to salvage the sub, but none were successful. The local doctor on the scene told the audience that Mr. Day had likely frozen to death. But that's because neither he nor John Day understood that water pressure increases by one atmosphere every 10 meters. By the time Day's wooden compartment reached its target depth, it was crushed by pressure to the tune of 57 pounds per square inch. The first person to realize something had gone wrong was none other than Christopher Blake, who, rather than try to raise the alert, instead ran away with the money. I tell you this story because, well, because it's a really great story. But I also tell you this story so that you know People were building submarines long before 1915, when William Frenchy Deneau found one sunk at the bottom of the Chicago River. And they were dying in them, too. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today, part three of The Fool Killer, The Man from the East. The Fool Killer was found in November 1915 by William Frenchy Deneau and named for the madcap contraptions of accountant-cum-daredevil Peter Neeson, though we can safely say that neither of them had a hand in either its creation or its sinking. Which leaves us with just a few spotty media reports of dubious provenance. But one idea that comes up a few times in the papers is that of an Eastern man who either brought the boat to Chicago or sold it there. That's about our only lead, but it's far from a dead end. Lots of things are east of Chicago, after all, and lots of men live in those places. And a surprising number of them built submarines. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. 
I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. There are spotty reports of submarines going back to the 12th century, although these likely refer to diving bells rather than undersea vessels. The first actual working submarine on record dates back to 1623 and Cornelius Drebbel, the Dutch court inventor for England's King James I, who we talked about back in our episode on perpetual motion machines. We can't say exactly how it worked or how he made it, but it seems most probable that Drebbel converted a rowboat, covering it over with some sort of watertight top. The front of the boat had a V-like slope, which, when rowed, caused the whole thing to cut underwater. According to accounts at the time, 12 rowers were able to propel the boat down the Thames, 15 feet underwater. 30 years later, the Council of the Southern Netherlands commissioned the first dedicated, ground-up, military semi-submersible, known as the Rotterdam Boat. The Rotterdam Boat floated just barely above the waterline. It was equipped with a ram, in hopes that it could cross the English Channel, sink some British boats undetected, before sidling back. Unfortunately, when the time came to launch the Rotterdam boat, it just sat there. In addition to being one of the world's first submarines, a good idea, it was also powered by one of the world's first and last clockwork engines, a bad idea. The Rotterdam boat's inventor, a French shipwright named Dessin, claimed that this spring-loaded propeller would provide enough oomph to get the craft to England and back in a day. Instead, it floated about at the mercy of the waves. Forty-five years before John Day sank permanently into Plymouth Harbor, an English carpenter named Nathaniel Simmons worked a similar trick, descending and resurfacing in what he called a sinking boat. He spent 45 minutes underwater before a large crowd, then popped back up and passed a hat around. He got one single shilling for his troubles. In 1796, the American Ezra Lee managed to steer a small, hand-driven submarine called Turtle into New York Harbor with designs on sinking HMS Eagle, the British flagship of Admiral Richard Howe. Lee did his damnedest, but it was the middle of the night in choppy water, and the small, round, wobbly Turtle only had 20 minutes of air. After attempting repeatedly to stick a bomb to the eagle's side, he became disoriented, probably on account of all the carbon dioxide he was sucking, panicked, and made a run for it. He was spotted bobbing awkwardly away on the surface, and the redcoats gave chase. So Lee threw his bomb at them in hopes that they'd panic and leave him alone. Luckily for him, they did. The first truly, reliably successful submarine came four years later, in 1800, at the hands of Robert Fulton, 
inventor of the steamboat, and debunker of perpetual motion hoaxes from that same episode. Fulton improved upon David Bushnell's design for the revolutionary turtle with a longer submarine boat capable of reaching two knots underwater via propeller and faster on the surface by sail. Fulton gave a name to his sub that struck imaginations much harder than turtle, including that of author Jules Verne. He called it the Nautilus. There were a heavy handful of attempts to build torpedo boats, diving boats, sinking boats, and submarines through the first half of the 19th century, usually by the British trying to sink Americans, or the Americans trying to sink the British, or the French trying to sink the British, or the French trying to rescue Napoleon. But none of this gets us any closer to putting a submarine in the Chicago River in time for it to be discovered in 1915. The American Civil War shows a bit of potential. In 1862, the USS Alligator became the first official submarine of the American Navy. After proving too conspicuous for service on the James River in Virginia, it was towed in 1863 to South Carolina, where it was discovered to be too cumbersome for the open water. It was cut loose from its tow and foundered before it could sink a single ship. The Alligator's Confederate counterpart, the CSS Hunley, did manage to sink a single ship, but not before the Hunley itself sunk, six times. First, it was hit by a steamship, then it got swamped in a storm, then it got pressed into its port by another boat, then it accidentally dove while its hatches were open, then it simply disappeared underwater during a test. Finally, on February 17, 1864, the Hunley attacked the USS Housatonic with a spear lined with explosives fastened to its tip but said explosive spear refused to become unfastened. The Housatonic sank, but so did the Hunley, this time forever. The Hunley held a maximum crew of eight, of which it managed to kill 42. So that's a no on the Hunley, and a no on the Alligator. The Confederates tried a few other submarines, but they all failed even more fully and spectacularly than the Hunley did. The Union, on the other hand, was severely allergic to the whole idea. In fact, how the alligator got made is a bit of a mystery to me, since both before and after it was commissioned, the U.S. Navy repeatedly told other submarine builders to suck an egg. The exact quote, in their response to an early submarine builder named Laudner Phillips in 1852, was, The boats used by the Navy go on, not under the water. Thirty-five years later, they were singing a different tune. In 1887, the U.S. Navy put up a $2 million commission for whomever could furnish them with the best submarine. And that's when things get interesting, because each of the competitors who came forward for their chance at the purse could be our man from the East, the inventor of the fool killer. So, let's take a look at the field. We'll open things up with a tag team act that's sure to excite One's from Manchester, one's from Sweden, one's a pacifist minister, one's a munitions dealer. Say hey to the original odd couple, George Garrett and Thorsten Nordenfeldt. Our next contestant just got in from New York City, and boy are his lungs tired. You can call him the inventor, you can call him the professor. Just don't call him crazy and have him committed to a lunatic asylum to prevent him spending the family fortune on building submarines. Oops, too late. It's Josiah 
Finally, from Ireland, by way of Patterson, New Jersey, you know him, you love him. He's the father of the modern military submarine. Give it up for John Philip Holland. Only one of them can be the inventor of the fool killer submarine found in the Chicago River in 1915. So, let's get ready to rumble. George William Littler Garrett was the son of a Manchester Anglican minister. He followed in his father's footsteps, becoming a curate at the same parish in Moss Side in 1873 when he was 21. Five years later, he built his first submarine. And that feels like a weird transition, but Garrett doesn't seem to have seen anything strange about being a reverend-slash-submariner. Before he donned the collar, he had graduated with a degree not from divinity school, but from the Manchester Mechanics Institute, where he served as assistant master and began work even then on a diving suit, which he eventually completed when he was 25. It was successfully tested in 1877 in the Seine in Paris. Garrett's engineering and his faith were commingled, as is evident in that first submarine, which he named Resurgum, Latin for, I shall rise again. Damn, that's clever. Garrett, my man, that is so clever. But not as clever as what observers called it. Resurgum was just 14 feet long, powered by hand crank, and shaped like a big iron oval. The people called Curate Garrett's egg the Curate's Egg, an expression that at the time meant something miserably bad, which you call good for the sake of politeness. Checkmate on the clever naming, Garrett. Well, whatever, Reverend George said. I think it's good. And so he built another, larger submarine, this one with a pointed conical tip on each side and powered by steam engine. That made for a mixed improvement, half good, half bad which ironically is the definition of a curate's egg today. The new Resurgum II was faster and more spacious than the first, able to accommodate a crew of three and run for up to four hours. On the other hand, the steam engine was, as steam engines tend to be, super hot. While the boat itself might be able to last four hours underwater, nobody could stand to be in it. It also tended to rock back and forth uncontrollably. But compared to the submarines that had preceded it, Resurgum II was light years ahead. So Garrett decided to bring it to Portsmouth to show it off. On February 24, 1880, the Elfin, which was towing Resurgum II, had engine problems, and Garrett, his skipper and engineer, exited the sub to help it out. But Resurgum II couldn't be shut from the outside, so when they left, it began to take on water. The tow rope broke, and Resurgum II sank to the bottom of Liverpool Bay. It did not rise again. George Garrett had literally sunk all of his money into the project. Which might have been all right, he didn't need more than his curate's benefits to live. But his wages from the Anglican Church wouldn't build a new submarine, and that's what he wanted. Enter Thorsten Nordenfeldt. When Nordenfeldt came across Garrett, the Swedish industrialist had been working in England for years. He was the son of a Swedish colonel and, unlike Garrett, had few compunctions about material wealth or weapons of war. That might have given Garrett pause, but Nordenfeld had the money he needed. So in 1885, they launched the far less reverently or cleverly named Nordenfeld One, 
which was essentially a larger version of the Resurgum II with a torpedo tube. It still had the same wobbling problem, but the heat issue was partially solved by having the engine build up steam at the surface before diving, so you at least wouldn't have to run the boiler with the hatches closed. But that meant that the process for preparing Nordenfeldt I to dive took 12 hours. Nordenfeldt and Garrett demonstrated the boat to the U.S. Navy shortly after it was completed and received a hard pass due to what the Americans called its dangerous and eccentric movements. But the Greek Navy was happy to get a little dangerous and eccentric themselves. They bought Nordenfeldt I in 1886, brought it to Salamis Naval Base, and got busy letting it rust in the docks. It was never used, and the Greeks scrapped it in 1901. Not to be outdone by their arch nemesis, the Turkish Navy purchased two larger submarines, the Nordenfelts II and III. The II was 100 feet long and had two torpedo tubes. The Ottomans renamed it Abdul Hamid, and it became the first ever submarine to fire a torpedo underwater. And then it immediately sank. The Nordenfelt III was to be renamed Abdul Masid, but after Hamid proved unworkable, it was never completed. In 1914, a plan was finally developed to put the Hamid and Masid to use. They were to be sunk in Istanbul Harbor to provide defense from torpedo attacks from working submarines. But the boats were so rusted out that they couldn't even do that, and so they were just thrown away. After the Turkish debacle, Garrett and Nordenfeldt's uneasy alliance fell apart. Garrett left both the clergy and engineering behind and moved to Florida, where he bought a farm and ran it into the ground. But Nordenfeldt was more persistent. While the three subs he had built had all failed, they were all pretty big success stories relative to the field. They could dive after a while. They could navigate underwater, if you were careful about it. They could even fire torpedoes, though probably not without sinking. That was three steps in the right direction, and the U.S. Navy took notice. It was the extremely measured success of the Nordenfeldt II that inspired them to open their $2 million competition in 1887. And while Garrett had already given up on the business, Nordenfeldt was still game. The Nordenfeldt IV was the largest of his submarines yet, with twin motors and two forward torpedo bays. But it lost the competition, and Thorsten sold it to the Russians instead. On its way from England to its buyers, it wobbled and ran aground off Jutland. Nordenfeldt tried to get Russia to pay for the wrecked boat they never received, and failed as you'd expect him to. That was the end of his submarine adventures. He scrapped the Nordenfeldt IV and formed the Nordenfeldt Guns and Ammunition Company, where he built machine guns until he went bankrupt and was forced out. He formed another arms company in France, was sued by his former company over a non-compete agreement, and retired to Sweden. The long and short of it is, neither Garrett nor Nordenfeldt's inventions could have gotten to the Chicago River. Next contestant, please. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Thing done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, 
the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Professor Josiah Tuck, who I'm pretty certain was not a professor, was born in 1825 New York and made his fortune mining gold as a 49er in San Francisco before returning to retire and, apparently, make submarines. The first was The Peacemaker, a 30-foot-long cigar-shaped experiment which was launched in 1884 off of West 13th Street in New York. Peacemaker was described as a shark with a bite taken out of its neck, and that bite was definitely its oddest feature. There was room for a two-man crew inside the Peacemaker's chamber, but it needed a crew of three. That third man was the captain, who would put on a diving suit and ride the boat like a seahorse, giving orders to the first mate and engineer through a short telephone line. If you think that sounds like a terrifying way to do things, you're not alone. When Peacemaker was tested on August 30th before a crowd half a thousand strong, Professor Tuck was on board the first launch. But just as he was not a professor, he was also not the captain. He decided he would ride inside as first mate and leave the job of straddling the vessel in a diving helmet with an air hose floating on the surface to his friend John Rich. As the countdown got underway, Rich faked sick, but Tuck insisted he was fine and eventually convinced him to take the plunge. Peacemaker was sealed with Tuck and an engineer. Rich was put into the diving suit and sat atop the contraption, and the whole thing was lowered to a depth of 10 feet. Then, off she went, on her way out into the Hudson. All that the crowd could see was the bubbles rising from Captain John Rich's breathing until they slowed and then stopped. Tuck's ground crew pulled at some connecting lines and brought Peacemaker back to the pier. When it raised, there was no sign of John Rich. He was soon discovered, collapsed in his captain's dip. He had apparently fainted the moment he hit the water and fallen on top of his air hose. He was alive, but had to be taken to the hospital to recover. Yet, somehow, when he got out, the professor convinced him to do it again. On September 19th, just more than two weeks after the first incident, the three again took to the peacemaker, before an interested and interesting audience, which included prominent naval officers and foreign ambassadors. This time, things went more smoothly. Rich remained conscious, and Peacemaker made it to the semi-open, crystal-clean waters of the Hudson River. Then, it ran into an oyster boat. Everybody was fine, there was no damage, but Rich was spooked and navigated back to the dock. This was, to Tuck's thinking, a meteoric success. And again, compared to most efforts of the day, it was. Still, it seems that after the second trial, he decided a redesign was in order one that wouldn't require the captain to cling to the roof. Yeah, Tuck, you think? In 1886, he completed Peacemaker 2, a larger sub with a small conning tower extending out of its top, decked with windows for the captain to look out of from the relatively safe, very relatively safe, confines of the hull. But Tuck made another change to Peacemaker 2 that made it a curate's egg of its own. The first Peacemaker was powered by electric battery, which limited both its speed and the amount of time it could work. He could have replaced it with a steam engine, but then he'd have had the same heating problem that Garrett had run into. 
So Tuck went with a third option, caustic soda. Sodium hydroxide, better known as lye, would be mixed with water and produce heat chemically to generate steam to turn a piston. Then the exhaust steam would be vented back into the soda to keep the reaction going. On November 20th, 1886, the extremely dangerous Peacemaker II was launched into the North River. On its first test, it dove for 15 minutes with Professor Tuck, the pilot John Holland, engineer John Klein, and General William Tecumseh Sherman inside. Yeah, that General William Tecumseh Sherman. The hullabaloo surrounding Peacemaker One's performance, particularly about its hospitalized pilot, had taught Tuck a few things about PR, and he used that knowledge to turn his second boat into a sensational event, attended by notable celebrities from all around New York. The first dive went well, and when the submarine surfaced, out popped the man who burned a path from Atlanta to the sea, who jumped up on deck with a smile and said, Positively no danger at all. Very nice indeed. Very nice. Professor Tuck was off to a very good day, and he needed it. The building and testing of his two babies had just about emptied his bank accounts. If things didn't go well, and he couldn't find a buyer, he'd be up the Hudson without a submarine. Too bad for Tuck. His luck ran out with Sherman's endorsement. The second test, to tow Peacemaker 2 at speed by tugboat, had to be abandoned because of some unknown technical foibles. The crowd grumbled, and while Tuck promised them his invention would still make the journey, he just needed a couple of days, it was a serious body blow. Tuck never got Peacemaker 2 in the water again. He went bankrupt, and both boats were seized by the bank and sold for scrap. Tuck didn't give up that easily. He spent every red cent left in his coffers trying to build a third sub to compete for the Navy Prize in 1887. But his family worried that their once sizable inheritance was quickly turning into a sizable debt, interjected. They had Tuck committed to a mental asylum, where he lived until 1900, and died. Which pretty well rules him out as the inventor of the fool killer. Next up is John Holland, who may or may not be the same John Holland who piloted the Peacemaker 2. It's not clear. Tuck said he was... But by November of 1886, John Holland was well into his own career, so it's a little strange that he'd have been acting as an underling to the professor. Holland had been thinking about submarines since the 1860s. Then, the age of the Ironside battleship was beginning, and Holland, a young Irishman, feared that England's oppressive dominance would only expand. He figured that submarines would be a good way to knock Queen Victoria's colonial ass down a peg. He left County Cork for the States in 1872, where he quickly found work as a school teacher in Patterson, New Jersey. Still, he thought of submarines. In 1875, he sent a design for one to the Navy secretary, who gave approximately the same response to Holland as he'd given to Laudner Phillips. Boats go on the water, not under it. In 1883, Holland formed the Nautilus Submarine Boat Company and eventually got backing from a number of investors, including Lieutenant Edward Zielinski, who became interested after he saw Peacemaker II and possibly John Holland, in 1886. Nautilus' first craft, the Zielinski boat, was a total failure. It collapsed before it even got fully into the water. But John Holland picked himself up, brushed himself off, and got ready to compete for the Navy Prize the next year. He didn't have the time or resources to build a new boat, but he could submit a design, a revolutionary design. It would be stable, long-running, and cool enough to accommodate a crew underwater, 
by virtue of Holland's brightest idea, a steam engine for surface travel and a separate electric battery for underwater running. Even without a working prototype, John Philip Holland won the competition. But for some reason, the money didn't follow, and neither did the contract. The next year, the competition was reopened and our same flock of suspects submitted. Again, Holland took the prize, and again, the prize refused taking. There was a new administration in power, and the new Navy secretary didn't care for the submarine plan. He had the money diverted to develop a traditional above-water fleet. So, the 1887 and 88 Navy submarine competitions get us nowhere. Garrett's losing his shirt in Florida, Nordenfeldt's making his nut in machine guns, Tuck's cooling his heels in Bellevue, and John Holland, half winner twice over with nothing to show for it. We're not done with this yet, though. Five years later, the Navy announced another submarine competition. In the ensuing time, the French Navy somewhat successfully tested a 60-foot submarine called Gymnote, and the Spanish built one named Peral, which could fire torpedoes without sinking. Big step in the right direction there. Congress, seeing those success stories, again, relatively, appropriated $200,000 for the best American submarine. A substantial step down from $2 million, but still well worth the effort. Whose effort? That's next, after this. This episode of The Constant is brought to you by BetterHelp. Everybody could use somebody to talk to, but traditional therapy can be expensive and inconvenient, and finding the right person is daunting. But with BetterHelp, you can connect with a professional counselor on your own schedule in a safe and private environment through secure video, phone, chat, or text sessions with your own therapist. BetterHelp has licensed professional counselors who specialize in relationships, depression, trauma, anxiety, LGBT matters, sleeplessness, and more. Their secure, convenient professional counseling is available worldwide as soon as 24 hours after signing up. And if you're not satisfied with your counselor, you can always request a new one. Best of all, it's affordable, with financial aid available for those who qualify. And BetterHelp is giving constant listeners 10% off their first month with discount code THECONSTANT. That's one word. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash theconstant, fill out a questionnaire to help assess your needs, and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash theconstant. Hey, Matt. Did you know that wombats poop cubes? Nope. Never heard that before. Did you know the unicorn is the national animal of Scotland, Ken? I didn't know, nor do I care. Neil, did you know that Liechtenstein is the only doubly landlocked country in Europe? Jeff, isn't that an American pop artist? Well, actually, it's both. If you want to learn things like that and more, join us each week on Triviality, a pub trivia-style game show podcast where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Listen in each week to answer general knowledge trivia alongside exciting guests from around the world. And we're here, too. Join us every Tuesday for new hour-long episodes of Triviality, plus tons of extra themed content on everything from The Office and Lord of the Rings to science and geography. And sometimes we even do sports. Find us on all your preferred podcast apps and take part in the fun of playing bar trivia without the need to wear pants. Real mature, Jeff. Forget it, Neil. It's Triviality. The 1893 subcontest had three challengers. The first was John Holland again. We'll get back to him. First, the other two, each of whom 
are pretty interesting. Simon Lake was born 1866 in Pleasantville, New Jersey. He graduated from high school and took a job at his dad's foundry, but he was fascinated by the idea of underwater travel since he read Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which was published when he was just four. When the 1893 competition was announced, Lake drew up a design, and when it was overlooked, he begged money from his family to build it anyway. The result was the Argonaut Jr., a scaled-down version of his submitted plans, 36-foot wooden wedge. The Argonaut Jr. looks like what a prop boat ridden by a high school theater troupe in a Wes Anderson movie would look like. It's tall and triangular with cartoonish portholes and big wooden wheels. Yes, wheels. Rather than try to propel the Argonaut Jr. through the water, Lake figured he'd roll it across the bottom which sounds pretty ridiculous, admittedly, but at least it worked. There were hand cranks inside the boat that turned the left and right wheels, allowing the operator to control port and starboard movement independently. He also built, and this part is very cool, an airlock in the bottom, so that when Argonaut Jr. reached the sand, he could open it up and pick stuff off of the seafloor, or even put on rubber boots and walk the boat around with him. It may have been weird, it might have been funny, but Argonaut Jr. was better than most of the subs yet built in the world, and so the investors came calling. He formed the Lake Submarine Company in New Jersey and got to work building the Argonaut Sr. Okay, it was just called the Argonaut, or sometimes Argonaut 1. It was 36 feet long with an internal combustion engine. It had to pull air from breathing tubes to keep the engine running and to expel the fumes, but other than that, Argonaut 1 was a tremendous success. In September of 1898, Lake got it to go from Norfolk, Virginia to Sandy Hook, New Jersey, underwater the whole way. It was the first submarine to successfully dive in the open ocean. Next, he made the Protector, a true military version for the U.S. Navy, who again said, thanks but no thanks. So, Lake sold it to Russia instead. He did have a successful career as a submarine builder from then on out, he spent a few years in Europe, building them for Germany and Russia and Austria, then returned to the States, where he formed the Lake Torpedo Boat Company in Connecticut in 1912. The Lake Torpedo Boat Company built subs for the U.S. Navy through the First World War. Then it made salvage vessels. But Lake had a bad habit of tweaking and tinkering with his boats. He'd order changes again and again and developed a bad reputation for being late on delivering orders. In 1924, the Lake Torpedo Boat Company sank. Lake died in 1945, just as the Second World War was ending. He also, most definitely, didn't make the fool killer. His designs looked nothing like it, he never operated near the Great Lakes, and he was alive to have called dibs in 1915. But the other fresh competitor of 1893 checks all the right boxes. Give it up, it up for, for the beast least from the east. He's best when he's pressed, and he's from the Midwest. The one, the only, George Baker. Boy, I hope that works out, because they're the introductions I have. Probably go back and make some more sober versions for, for when I listen to this later and discover that I hate it. Uh, but I think we're just married to it now. So that's going to be fun. Unlike Holland and Lake, who only submitted designs and blueprints, 
George Baker entered the 93 race with an actual boat already built and tested. Baker was a Union Civil War hero, having fought at Vicksburg. He was born in 1844 on a small Illinois farm, but when the war was over, he settled down in Polk City, Iowa, working in mercantiles there. Polk City was good to Baker. It was there he met his wife, Mary Robinson, and there that they bore three sons, George, Charles, and Clyde. And it was there he was elected county auditor in 1873. But neither the mercantile business nor the local office provided enough money to keep George and his growing family happy. He opened a hardware company and invented a machine for manufacturing barbed wire in 1879, which netted him an absolute fortune. Barbed wire had been invented only five years before by Joseph Glidden, and is this common knowledge? Is this even worth saying? I went to undergrad in DeKalb, Illinois, Glidden's hometown, and I grew up in a suburb west of Chicago that was basically built on Glidden's legal fees, so for most of my life, the importance of barbed wire has been impressed hard upon me. I imagine that's probably not true for everybody. Barbed wire was the first effective way ever created to pen cattle. Before barbed wire, you had to either build high, expensive, labor-intensive fences, and there was virtually no way to build those at the sizes you needed, or plant Osage Orange, a difficult, spiny bush that cows didn't like crossing around the perimeter. Barbed wire didn't have to be grown, like Osage Orange, and it didn't take hundreds of man-hours of labor and thousands of dollars to erect. It changed farming, animal husbandry, and eventually, war. And it made its inventors, designers, and builders a lot of money. George Baker, with his automatic wire barbing machine, was one of the recipients of that fortune. In 1887, he moved from Iowa to Chicago and set up his new offices there. But in the background, George Baker had a hobby. And you know what it was, because of course you do. Why am I pretending like there's any suspense about this? Submarines. Submarines. Baker's hobby was submarines. Some sources say he submitted a design back in 1888 during the second Navy competition, although I can't confirm that. I do know that in that year, he built a prototype submarine and tested it in, oh, come on, guess where? The Chicago River. Don't get too excited, though. The first Baker boat was only 15 feet long, and he couldn't make it sink or handle water pressure. But that was okay. It taught Baker some valuable lessons. And anyway, the main point of the prototype was to test a patent he'd made on what he referred to as a mechanism for propelling vessels. The tiny, unsubmersible submarine had two propellers midship on either side, and they could be rotated all the way around 360 degrees, meaning that the same screws that carried the boat forward could also be turned to make it descend or ascend. A very novel idea at the time. And had the boat been less buoyant and more resilient, Baker was convinced it would have worked. So in December 1890, he went to the Detroit Boat Works with a tiny tin clockwork model of a submarine. Together with Fred Ballin and Hubert Humphrey, he built his submarine out of spare parts and scraps. It was made of an oak shell, canvassed over and sealed with beeswax, and then covered in more oak. It had a 60-horsepower steam engine with a telescoping exhaust pipe to match its revolutionary periscope. Like Holland's design, it had a separate electric motor for underwater use. But Baker's design was smarter still. The steam engine could charge the electric batteries while the boat was on the surface. Most importantly for our purposes were its dimensions. 
It was 40 feet long. In November of 1891, testing began at its slip at the Detroit Boat Works. Four months later, in early April, it moved to the Rouge River on the south end of the city. The river was only just deep and wide enough for the Baker boat to do careful half-mile laps, turning carefully back around at either end. But it worked. It made eight and a half knots, 10 miles per hour, both on top and below the drink. The word of Baker's submarine spread fast, especially after he began taking local reporters down on his river tests. Standing before the great captain's wheel amidship, 15 feet underwater, he announced to a reporter for the Detroit Free Press his intentions to take the Baker boat to Chicago for the 1893 World's Fair. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. Baker's 40-foot-long submarine arrived in Chicago on November 2, 1892, and was moored to the mouth of the Calumet River. Testing began on Lake Michigan later that month. On the 30th, George Baker had his big show. He'd take the sub out of the Calumet, submerge, transverse, and surface, all in front of the Navy Commission. And so it went. The boat went out the Calumet into the lake and then silently sunk beneath the waves. Then... Just a handful of minutes later, it shot to the surface and breached almost out of the water. Something was wrong with the seals, and the boat was taking on water. Okay, okay, that's all right. Baker got the water out and the gaskets fixed. The trial recommenced and immediately stopped again. Something was wrong with the controls. Some battery acid had leaked onto the wires that worked the rudders. No worries, George Baker was on it. While the Navy Commission and a crowd of increasingly listless onlookers watched... Baker repaired the wires and finally called for the test to begin again. The sub again went down and again popped up. There was another leak and it was pouring all over the electronics. No fixing that. Not today, at least. The boat was towed back to its berth and Baker retreated in embarrassment and frustration. But it wasn't a total loss. There were a number of prominent Navy men who had seen the boat unofficially on earlier dives in Detroit and they were rooting for him. One was Commodore William M. Folger, Chief of Bureau Ordnance. It was Folger who got the competition reopened in 1893 for pretty nearly the express purpose of giving the award to Baker. He was a shoo-in. Holland and Lake each had their virtues, and Holland had the not small benefit of having already twice won this competition, but Baker had what neither of them did, an actual, semi-working submarine, not just a design. Not to mention the military and political connections of a rich Chicago industrialist. But in March of 1894, 
While the Navy continued to mull the matter over, George Baker's appendix burst. He fell ill in Washington, D.C. while trying to lobby for his invention and died on the 25th of the month. Could the Baker boat be our fool killer? Uh, that's where I'm thankful this is an audio medium, because if you could see the two, there'd be no mystery at all. They were about the same length, but that's where the similarities stop. The Baker boat was big and round like a fat sunfish with a tiny little conning tower protruding from the top. It looked like what a four-year-old would draw a submarine to look like. The Fool Killer, on the other hand, looked like a slightly flattened toilet paper tube with portholes cut out of the sides and a sharp conical point at the front. Plus, the Baker boat was made of wood, while the Fool Killer was distinctly steel. When he passed, George's widow Mary had him brought back to be buried in Des Moines. Then, she sold off all the machinery and electronics within his legacy, had the empty husk towed out to the middle of Lake Michigan, filled with sand, and sunk there. The Navy contract was, for the third time, awarded to John Holland. And, for the third time, it failed to come. So Holland decided to play hardball. He announced that he was considering offers from other countries, including England. The U.S. Navy didn't like that. Facing the threat of Holland's expertise falling into foreign hands, they acquiesced and handed over the 200 grand for him to build the first officially sanctioned U.S. Navy submarine, USS Plunger. Having finally gotten what he worked so hard to get, Holland was almost immediately regretful. The Navy kept adding new conditions and standards and suggestions to his boat. It had to be 84 feet long, which Holland thought was silly. It was built with two screws for driving it on the surface, and then a third separate one for underwater driving, connected to an electric motor. The surface engine needed to have 1,500 horsepower, and it had to be able to get eight knots submerged, meaning that the boat would need two separate powerful, piping-hot steam engines. When it was finally launched in 1897, Plunger was so unstable, it almost flipped over, and so hot that the crew couldn't tolerate being inside. Plunger was a catastrophe, but John Holland knew it would be, way ahead of the military brass. While they were still gluing more and more thingamabobs to the Navy boat, Holland was surreptitiously building a second submarine in private. In contrast to Plunger, Holland's other boat was just 53 feet long, powered by a diesel engine and electric battery. He called it the Holland. The Holland represented a quantum leap in submarine design. It had a top speed of eight knots on the surface and seven underwater. It had one torpedo tube and a range of a thousand miles. It didn't roll or pitch or overheat or leak. It was practical, functional, and deadly. The plunger was abandoned, but in 1900, Holland was rechristened USS Holland, the first United States Navy submarine. From there, they ordered seven, five of which were built. Five more Hollands were built for the British Royal Navy and five for Japan. John Philip Holland became not just a father of the modern submarine, but a prolific one. But Holland himself was pushed out of his own company, and when he tried to make boats on his own, they sued him for patent infringement on his own patents. In 1907, he submitted one last design to the U.S. Navy. It was rejected. He fell into bitter defeat 
and died on August 12, 1914, in Newark, New Jersey. Could any of the boats built for Holland's electric boat company be our fool killer? No. Everything built by Holland for or after the Navy competitions were pretty strictly tracked by the military, and none of them even touched fresh water, from what I can tell. However, Holland did build one other submarine before all of that. One that was meant for Chicago. And its story is astonishing. We'll get to it next time on Episode 4 of The Fool Killer, The Unusual Suspects. Music for today's episode by Blue Dot Sessions and Kevin McLeod. Special thanks for this episode go out to our Patreon supporters, especially Mark Vincent, Charles Henry Corteau, Brock Russell, Joshua Trowbridge, Jack Lawrence, Thomas S. Howard, Matthew L. Daniel, and the ever-mysterious Will S. If you want to join them, go to patreon.com slash theconstant and sign up to help support the show. And check out our website, constantpodcast.com, for extra info and pictures about this week's content. While you're there, you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages where you can, and I hope will, follow us. I'm so happy to see that people seem to really be enjoying this miniseries. I frankly wasn't sure if you would. Please go rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It helps people find the show and puts a little spring in my step every time. And please tell a friend. We are a proud part of Hub and Spoke Audio Collective, a group of independent, high-quality, story-driven podcasts out of Boston. Among our increasingly wonderful ranks is Subtitle, who take a fascinating and quirky approach to questions of linguistics. Their latest episode is about the ways trees talk to one another, and it makes a fantastic companion piece to Richard Powers' Pulitzer Prize-winning The Overstory, which I happened to pick up right before listening. Go check it out. We'll be back in two weeks. Until then, from Chicago, Illinois, home to the German World War II submarine U-505 since 1954, when it was donated to the Museum of Science and Industry, this has been The Constant.